Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast. And we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Today I want to tell you about a brand new podcast that I'm really loving. It's called 27 Club, and it's hosted by Jake Brennan, the creator and host of Disgraceland, and iHeartRadio's 2020 Best Music Podcast winner. 27 Club tells the stories of musical icons who all died at the age of 27, and season one is all about Jimi Hendrix. Jimi died mysteriously at the age of 27, and he lived his life unlike any other. He was arguably the greatest rock and roll guitar player of all time, and he was a busy guy. Busy getting kidnapped, busy running from the mafia, busy stealing trucks with Neil Young, trying to get to Woodstock on time. Jimmy got busy with himself and got himself kicked out of the army. He was fired by Little Richard, arrested by Seattle cops and Canadian Mounties, doused with LSD by his manager on stage in front of thousands, and haunted by the ghost of the Rolling Stones' Brian Jones. All of these Jimi Hendrix stories and more are coming at you in Season 1 of The 27 Club. If you like Disgraceland, Jimi Hendrix, larger-than-life rock stars, or just plain old mystery and drama, then you're going to love The 27 Club. Subscribe to The 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Music can accelerate child brain development and strengthen intellectual, emotional, and motor skills, as well as overall literacy. Bringing music into the classroom can help kids explore the mind-body connection and become comfortable with self-expression. Sadly, many children's music programs are lacking in the resources they need to let kids explore this creative space. That's why Osiris is happy to partner with the Mockingbird Foundation. Founded in 1996, the Mockingbird Foundation is a volunteer-run nonprofit organization dedicated to improving access to music education for America's youth. Each year, the foundation awards grants to dozens of music education programs and funds those grants through a combination of fundraising, publishing, and the curation of Fish.net, 
one of the earliest internet fan communities. Mockingbird is entirely volunteer, with no staff, no salaries, and no office. So every dollar really does make a difference in providing children's music programs with the staffing, instruments, and support they need. The foundation gets over $150,000 each year in grants. To donate or to learn more, visit mbird.org. That's M-B-I-R-D dot So, man, like, uh, I was going to ask you, like, were you born in 78, 79? What year were you born? 79. You were born in 79. July 79. 79. Yeah. Do you know if the dead played on your birthday? Oh, that's a great question. I don't, actually. I don't think they did. Because the reason I'm asking is... I feel like I would have known that. I'm asking because, you know, we're talking about a show from 77 uh, in this episode, and I was born in 1977, and... I looked it up. The Dead did not play on my birthday, but they did play four days before my birthday, and that is Dick's Picks 15. That's the uh, show. That's the show from. That's the English Town, New Jersey show, like where they played in front oh, of like a hundred thousand people. That's a that's so, a classic, yeah. So like, I was born four days after that. So like, I I don't know if my mom. I mean, my mom was bursting at that point. So. <laughs> You know, it would have been nice if I could have been born on the third, and if somehow, like, my young fetal body could have been, like, flown to New Jersey so I could have been at that show, so I could have said I was at, a, at one of the Dick's Pick shows. I, that she would have been amazing. Uh, dancing in the, uh, dancing on the lawn, nine months pregnant to no, I don't think my mom, town. You know, I'd love to hear if, I doubt my mom knows any Grateful Dead songs. Maybe she'll listen to this podcast and become educated in the dead. <laughs> if nothing else, we'll educate our parents, right? <laughs> That's my I sister did. hope. I so have taken we... my dad to a fish show, but... Uh, oh, you yeah, did? No, no Grateful Dead. Yeah, I did. Wait, wait, Maybe that's wait, a story wait. For, for another time. But yeah, I, uh, I took him to Alpine in uh, 2015, I want to say. Did he like and, it? Like it. His review of the show when we got back in the car was, how do so many people know where to buy pot? <laughs> also, oh, he, he said he liked the uh, he liked the Manfred Mann song. Can you guess uh, what that would have been? Uh, Mighty Quinn? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's to a my dad, but that's song. a Manfred Mann song. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think your dad's a cop. Your dad's a cop. Because <laughs> he, he's close. He, he he's, wants to know where the pot is, and he thinks Mighty Quinn's a Manfred Mann song. That's telltale right. sign of a He was narc. good-natured about it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, this is 36 from The Vault, and uh, I'm Stephen Hyden. And I'm Rob Mitchum. And uh, like I said, we're talking about uh, a show from 1977 today. This is Dick's Picks Volume 3. Uh, the show is May 22nd, 1977, at the Hollywood Sportatorium and Pembroke Pines, Florida. <laughs> that, that venue name, it's like its like a Tim and Eric joke. 
Yeah, yeah I, I was going to say Simpsons. It sounds like a, like a Simpsons <laughs> cutaway gag, the Springfield Sportatorium. I, I'm excited to talk about the Sportatorium. I, I dug into the history of that place a little bit, and uh, I could just talk about that venue, I think, for this entire episode. But uh, right. you, you, we have a, you came for Grateful Dead, May 77. You're going to get... <laughs> A deep dive into the history oh, yeah. of the Hollywood Sportatorium. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, this is like maybe, you know, I mean, this is like the most famous month in Grateful Dead history, right? I mean, there is no more like famous month in the band's history than May 77. Yeah. Exactly. You can't really like uh, just take a page of the calendar from any of the other big years like you can for 77. And we'll get into it. It's, it's, it's kind of weird that that is the month, but... There's, it's, you know, I think that's, that's consensus. everyone this is tuck from fit for a king in off-road minivan every week i bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast get tucked join me every monday with bands like counterparts crystal lake like moths to flames and many more we play unsigned and undiscovered bands deep dive into each artist's history and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media. And it's extremely well-documented month in their history. And this show obviously isn't the most famous show from May of 77, but it is uh, one of the more well-known ones, of course, because of where it came in the, uh, uh, the secession of Dick's Picks releases. And this record, it came out, it was uh, in November of 1995, and it was eight months after the second Dick's Picks. Right. And this was also very momentous because it was the first one released after Jerry died. Yeah. Jerry, Jerry died yeah. what? It was in August. Was it August? It exactly. was August. Yeah. Yeah. Last show was in July and then he died a month later. Yeah. It, uh, I, I'm pretty sure it was in the works before then. Um, these things took a lot longer back in those days but uh yeah it was the first after jerry died there was another live release between dick's picks 2 and dick's picks 3 it's the 100 year hall album have you ever heard that one yeah that's from uh 72 right right that's another europe 72 show and to get into the weeds the reason why it's not a dick's picks is because it's a multi-track recording and at the time they were only calling uh Dick's Picks were only the two-track recordings. So, like, you know, so on Europe 72, they took a professional mobile recording studio around with them and recorded all the shows, like, properly and professionally. So they decided to go back to some of those shows, and they ended up, I think it's a show from Frankfurt, I believe. Uh, pretty good. I, I, I think I bought that one right when it came out, actually. 
the hundred year hall set. It was pretty good. It's got a really long the other one on it, and uh, yeah. So that one because it had a professional quality recording, they recorded it. They released it just as its own thing uh, called hundred year hall. Uh, whereas the Dick's Pick series was uh, just for like the you know quote unquote lesser quality shows uh, that they pulled out of the vault. I'll say this about hundred year hall too that. For those of us who still haunt uh, UCD stores, 100-Year Hall is very easy to find. It's like one of the most oh, like yeah. common uh, Grateful Dead live records that pops up. So, uh, yeah, I, I feel like I see that all the time. I actually don't own that album, but like, I see it all the time. I, I, I feel like I probably should have bought it by now. It's like everybody bought it after the Jerry Death bump. And then, <laughs> right. Uh, they were faced with a 36 minute long the other one and they sent it right back <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned how 100 year hall wasn't released as part of dick's picks because it was a multi-track recording it was i guess in a sense like too professional for the dick's pick series and yet this volume three i think is appreciably better sound quality wise than the first two and that has a lot to do with one of the great, I feel like she's well known, but I still want to call her an unsung hero of like the Grateful Dead history, and that's Betty Cantor Jackson, yeah. uh, which I feel like Grateful Dead fans know her from the Betty boards. Um, but and we'll get into this in the episode. But you know, we're going to talk about May seventy seven being a very famous month in Grateful Dead history, and whether that is a reflection of like the quality of the playing or of the quality of the recordings that were made that month. Because I think this recording sounds really great. (laughs) And a lot of it has to do with Betty Kanner Jackson. Um, But I feel like we should talk about her, I think, a little bit, because people may know the name, but they don't really know a whole lot about her, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, she was like sort of part of the Dead Crew from, from pretty early on. Like a lot of the early dead recordings like both studio and live were attributed to bob and betty and she was the betty of course and it's she kind of like you know the dead organization's kind of hard to track sometimes and she seemed to have a lot of different roles uh like she was bob's guitar tech at one point <laughs> which right. is a like a weird a weird path to follow i think around this time actually when she was doing yeah. like, the really famous late 70s betty boards she said Except- she would tune up bob's guitar and then run over to the board and like set up her reel to reel and you know do her recording so it's always like i wish i knew more about like soundboard recording because to me it seems like you would just get like like anybody could plug into the soundboard and get the same recording because you know clearly the sound guys are doing the mixing and you're just getting a patch off of that so i'm not sure why the betty boards sound so much better than other recordings that would have occurred at that in that time frame if there were others well uh, i mean so, I, I think she was like a like an actual recording engineer like from what i've read about her she was involved in uh like the you know not only doing like live shows like i think she was like she was one of the people that worked on live dead so she was involved in the organization even back then i think she also like was in the studio like for Working Man's Dead. Like she worked with Bob Matthews, who was the producer of that record. But I think she was like an engineer on that record. Yeah. So she really yeah. is like one of the pioneers of, of kind of like the prime of like rock album recording, and certainly being a woman in that scene uh, makes her uh, you know 
a real pioneer of, of that time. And she certainly suffered from the sexism that existed in the dead world, <laughs> you know, where she was essentially frozen out because she ended up being like, uh, I think she was Brett Midland's girlfriend. I don't think they were married. But yeah, just she was, girlfriend. Because she was married to, to Rex Jackson, who was a famous roadie in the dead world. And then he died in a car accident. And then she started dating Brent. And then they broke up. And then she basically got put into the like ex-girlfriend zone, even though she had been yeah. in the organization for years. And... Uh, it's incredible because like she actually ended up like selling a lot of these recordings that she had because she was so down on her luck in the mid 1980s. Yeah. It was even Would worse you... than that. Like she had them in a storage uh, you know, like a storage warehouse and couldn't pay the rent on it, so they just went up for auction. She didn't even see the money. It was just like, you know, she didn't pay the bills. And so they sold off her stuff. And there's a great story uh on Relics a few years back by Dean Mudnick called What's Become of the Bettys that follows that whole lineage of what happened to those tapes. And she just had, you know, hundreds, thousands maybe, of reel-to-reels stored in the storage locker. Not just of the dead, but, you know, the new writers of the Purple Sage. She did a bunch of, like, Jerry Garcia band recordings that nobody else recorded. Um, yeah, and they got, like, sort of cut up and sent to three different don- three different, like, people different buyers in this auction none of whom appeared to be deadheads and didn't really know what they had and so there was like you know the betty board idea like the 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 mystique of it only grew because of this crazy story of what happened to all these betty board tapes and eventually uh like one of the buyers sort of leaked them out like had a deadhead buddy who leaked them out to the community then like the one of the the fake bob from the dark star orchestra <laughs> got involved and right. digitized a bunch of these tapes and so the, like it it was like late on it was like late 80s early 90s a little bit before my time but like you know not contemporaneous at all to these shows that all these like amazing soundboards of the dead in the 70s and other bands in the 70s started like leaking out in the community and all these tapes apparently weren't in the grateful dead vaults like some of them were because obviously this show was in the vault to come out uh but some of these other shows didn't even make it didn't get like brought back to the vault proper until just a couple years ago it sounds like yeah there were like 50 shows that that uh, Betty had recorded between 71 and 80, so like prime era Grateful Dead, that were just delivered to the vault. But as you mentioned, you know, some of her, some of the Betty boards had already leaked. And of course, the most famous being the May 8th, 77 show, the Cornell show, which is probably the most famous Grateful Dead show, or at least like among like the four or five most famous Grateful Dead shows. I feel like that's a show that if you aren't a fan of the band, that that is often the entry point that people have. Um, yeah. And we'll get it, and we'll if get you into even, it. Like, yeah. If you even think, I'm thinking about getting into the Grateful Dead, and not even say it out loud, then a tape of May 8th, 1977 shows up in your mailbox the next day. It's just and, like a command to, to the cosmos that and, you are ready to hear Cornell. And it, it, it has a lot to do with, I mean, that's a great show, obviously, but it's also... I think the nature of of where the dead were at at that point, where um, it's a fairly straightforward show. It's not too crazy. They're actually very professional at this time. They were playing similar set lists 
you know, night after night. So like the songs that they had were pretty polished. You know, they weren't doing like crazy drum space improvisations for like a half hour, you know, the kind of stuff that could alienate people when they're first getting into the band. And, you know, we're, we're going to get into this when we talk about the show, but I think just as like sort of like an overall uh, question to, to, to pose, you know, as we get into this is talking about May 77, you know, like why that is such a mythical month for the dead, because not only do we have like Dick's three and the May 8th show, but, you know, I was looking, if you just look at May 77, pretty much like every show they played that month has been released in some format. You know, there was like the, the Dick's 29 has May 19th and May 21st. Uh, you know, there's the May 77 box set, which has, um, I think there's like five shows on that. There's the Get Shown the Light box set, which has like an additional four shows. There's a live album called To Terrapin, Hartford, which is May 28th. I think there's only like four or five shows from this month that have not been released. And of course, then there's a bunch of other 77 shows outside of May. Um, but I'm curious to hear what you think about this, you know, because I think this applies to my feeling about Dick's Picks Volume 3, which is an album I like a lot. But I also find it to be maybe not quite as exciting as other dead shows or dead eras where it's not as consistent, but the highs are higher and the lows are lower, where it feels like a little riskier. And I feel like that's maybe more of a sweet spot for me. I feel like the consistency of this era is what makes it so popular. I also think the excellence of the sound that Betty Kenner Jackson was able to, to capture makes it so popular because these recordings just sound so good. And I think especially like on the bottom end, like the, the bass yeah. sounds phenomenal, like on Betty yeah, boards. Yeah, Phil is like so good on these tapes. Yeah, and, that you like can really. You, and so, you, like, he's like the lead instrument almost. It's so full. And, like, when you think about, like, why, you know, like the, the highlight of the May 8th show, obviously, is the Scarlet Fire and, like, the Phil bombs right. at the beginning. It comes through <laughs> so beautiful, yeah. you know. And not to say that the rest of the album isn't great, but that is sort of like the you know like the the meat of the show or the the you know the star of that of that set so you know i i really feel like betty Kenner jackson is like the secret mvp of this album and a lot of the the may 77 shows but like what are your feelings about that uh you know do you think this is the best dead era or is it overrated in a way like what do you think well, it 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 kind of goes back to I think the you know a couple episodes ago you asked me what my favorite year of the dead is and I I didn't really have an answer because I I sort of feel like there are so many different Grateful Deads within the Grateful Dead that it's really hard to just like pick one and say yes this was the year this is the defining year of the Grateful Dead and seventy seven to me is such a weird year to pick to be like I all the reasons you stated are are, are I totally agree with and I think have a lot to do with why it has such a sterling reputation. You know, the just this month of May 77 in, in dead lore. Um, but it's a really weird year for the dead. And it's like, I was thinking about this. I mean, this is absolutely like the peak of disco dead, right? Like, <laughs> right. I don't think there's any question of that. And we're going to talk a lot about that tonight. Uh, but the... it Any other band... And they had two drummers again, like... Yeah, any any other band, any other rock band in the 70s that did a disco phase, 
that is like the darkest corner of their history <laughs> that no, that nobody ever like talks about like maybe the only other band that like came out of that well is like the stones i would say like kind of had like some decent like disco crossover but everybody else it's like oh look at all these like six late 60s rock stars doing the money grab for disco and then like the dead and just like peak disco mode is like this really beloved month and year of Grateful Dead music among Dead fans. So that that is always funny to me. And it, the other thing is that it's like a really kind of seedy era of the Dead. Like, I feel like these are like really coked up shows, like to put it bluntly. Like right. the, the tempos are very high. <laughs> the band is very high energy and very high spirits. And like... I think cocaine has made for a lot of great live albums by a lot of bands over the years. So it kind of makes sense. But like you see like the pictures and the video from this era and it is like peak like scumbum Grateful Dead. Like Jerry with like the dark sunglasses and like Mickey with his whole hairy thing going on. And like it just like it's 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 like a it's kind of like a it's a it's dark and gross. Like it makes sense that Chick Down Street is like right after this because this kind of feels like very much not like a hippie, like love, peace and love 60s band at this point. This is like slick pre 80s cocaine rock music. Right. And oh, yeah. Like there's, and like both of us, I think, are like, you know, fans of that. <laughs> but it's also like not what I think people think of when they think of like what's, what is iconically Grateful Dead. Uh, they don't go to this sort of like, you know the 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 deep dark late 1970s uh vibes yeah i mean i i think in a way this is the beginning of the 80s for the dead uh, that yeah. that transition that they made into being in an arena rock band and then of course they eventually became a stadium rock band but yeah i think you put it really well that the sort of like dark star era you know the like psychedelic thing that they had obviously in the 60s and then in the early 70s it kind of went into like more of a a jazzy kind of almost like country-ish sounding vibe that you really hear in 73 you know that's gone by 77 and i think again i really love 77 and i love i love this show the sticks picks volume three i love a lot of the 77 stuff that i've heard um but it does have a sort of bluster to it uh and uh and like a cocaine type energy that's that's really different and you know we'll get into this when we talk about the show but i just think about like eyes of the world uh mm-hmm. on this album versus like eyes of the world from like 73 where obviously you have one drummer playing it so that changes it uh but it just swings a lot differently in 73 than it does when you hear it on this album where you have that sort of disco rhythm being put into Mm -hmm. it, which is that, is that Mickey or is that like both of them doing that? Cause like everything is super fast and it has that sort of like, you know, kind of dancey kind of syncopation to it. And I don't know if that's ever been like determined, like who was laying that down. Cause I, I always think of like on the uh, May 8th show, like when they played Jack Straw, Right. Like how they throw it into there. There's like a little bit of a disco yeah. thing in there, and you know, because obviously you have like dancing in the street, which is a big, you know, kind of a clear disco type showcase, and music never stopped has that. But even like yeah. songs that you like where it doesn't belong at all, 
Uh, oh, yeah. They slip it in. Like I actually, like, when, I was just gonna say like, one show I was curious about uh, that I listened to yesterday uh, was May twenty sixth because that's one of the shows that wasn't released. And yeah. they they do a version of Big River on there, mm-hmm. and they kind of and they kind of disco up Big River. And yeah. I'm like Jesus Christ! Like you guys were slipping this into everything, man. Like at yeah. this time, it's just insane. No, they love to like uh, disco up. It, it almost felt like a prank. Like they were they were playing on Bob a lot of the times. Like a lot of the cowboy songs get like disco beats, and uh, even in this show, like if you listen to the stuff that didn't make the cut, like the stuff that was left off, the Dix picks. Like there's disco beats on New Minglewood Blues. Like there's disco beats on uh, Brown Eyed Women. Like it's it's all over the place. They couldn't get enough of it, and I think it was kind of both of them, because I don't really think of Mickey as like the dancier of the two drummers. Like he's more like bringing like the exotic flavor. Like it, it seems like Billy would be into disco, just because he has kind of like that R and B like roots. So. Right. You know, it's just a four on the floor beat, and all of a sudden, all the kids are going wild for it. So let's uh, let's put it on every song in the back catalog and see if it flies. So let, let's set the scene for this show, you know, in terms of like just talking about what was going on and, and, and what the venue was like. Because, yeah, I mentioned at the top uh, where they played, it's called the Hollywood Sportatorium. And um, it doesn't exist anymore. I think it was closed like in 1990 or, or early 90s or so. Uh, but the, the address on the, on the record is Pembroke Pines, but it's, it's basically like Hollywood, Florida. And which exists in southern Florida between Fort Lauderdale and Miami. And this is the second Florida show that we've had out of the first three Dicks picks. And you don't really think of Florida as being like a hotbed of like counterculture, Grateful Dead, hippie activity. But here we are. You know, being in Florida, I think definitely adds to the, you know, sort of scumbag vibe. Of the Ted. <laughs> Absolutely. And, 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 the uh the cocaine was probably quite good. <laughs> I would say. It's pretty close to the it's close to the source down here in uh southern Florida. So exactly. Yeah, the you know, the the boats didn't have to travel far to carry the, to to bring the shipments to the dead uh down in Florida. Exactly. That's for sure. So from from what I can gather, the dead played here four times. They played in seventy seven, seventy eight, eighty, and eighty five. 
And just from what I've read about this venue, it sounds like it was a total just dump. Like it's described as like basically like an airplane hangar made out of concrete <laughs> with like a steel roof, holds about 14,000 people and no air conditioning in this place. And again, this is Southern Florida mm-hmm. where in May, it, in May, May. So, you know, it's probably approaching 80 degrees and it's humid as hell. So, and and you have like 14,000, like, you know, hippies and burnouts under one, in in like a concrete box, sweating their asses (laughs) off. So probably not the best smelling place or, you know, the best, uh, you know, most comfortable place. But, you know, it was like another one of these venues and we've talked about it before, but it was like... You know, they'd have rock bands there, but they'd also have, like, rodeos and wrestling matches and boxing matches. Um, I mean, it seems like it was a pretty hot spot for rock shows in the 70s. Like, pretty much every major rock band at the time, from, like, Zeppelin to Bowie to Pink Floyd, like, they all played shows here. In 1977, yeah. in particular, they uh, the Beach Boys played there. Elvis Presley played a show on one of his last tours there. Elvis Presley, of course, died in August of 77. Uh, so a couple months after the show, Elvis was dead. Um, Leonard Skinner played one of its last concerts before the big plane crash that killed uh, three of their members. Uh, I believe they played on August, they played on October 15th, 1977, and five days later, the plane crash happened. So pretty historic Leonard Skinner show. Um, and then, of course, The Dead played there in May. So, yeah, this definitely seems like a show that was better to hear on tape than to actually be there, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it's a... I don't know if there are odds of this show, but I imagine the uh, acoustics are not great at the Sportatorium, <laughs> right. given that it was entirely hard surfaces. Um, I also want to mention, you know, that the Sportatorium took the place in Southern Florida of another classic Grateful Dead venue some people might know, which was Pirate's World in Dania, Florida, which is always good for a chuckle when you see that on a set list. It literally was like a pirate-themed amusement park that had <laughs> uh, a theater as part of it, which is, I, it might be the most Spinal Tap place that the Grateful Dead played. Just... There was even, what was I reading about? There was a riot at Pirates World. Somebody at one point sent me on Twitter like a news clipping of the the Pirates World riot outside of a Grateful Dead show (laughs) sometime in the early 70s. So no no word on whether they had to like perform in pirate-themed attire, though certain areas of the dead, I'm not sure you would be able to tell the difference. It is interesting, though, because we talked about this being like the beginning of the 80s dead where, you know, they were making that transition that transition from being a theater band and more of a cult band and then eventually being, like, one of the biggest draws on the, on the concert circuit by the end of the 80s. And it is kind of fun to see these, like, just weird venues that they used to play because, of course, by the end of the 80s, it was all, you know, Alpine Valley or, like, the Meadowlands or, you know, these, like, very large established kind of corporate music venues uh right you know but they were still playing the sportatoriums of the world fairly often uh 
you know, in the late 70s, you know, during a period that is very well regarded in their history. Um, but it's just fun for those of us who weren't around at the time to listen to these shows and maybe not have the context of like just how awful some of these venues were that the Grateful Dead played <laughs> back then, you know, during this historic month in their history. Um, right. And so, I think like some of it too is like they probably played pretty good shows, maybe even better shows away from their core fan bases, which is kind of interesting. Like, I wonder if, you know, there was something about being uncomfortable that led them to a slightly better show than they would have played at the time in, you know, New York or San Francisco. Oh, um, yeah. It, it just, it's funny that the first three Dick's picks, you know, I think it's a little bit that maybe they played great shows sort of out of the way um, that were worthy of release. And maybe also, you know, early on, Dick was really trying to put out shows that weren't already in people's collections. So I think these were considered sort of hidden gem shows and partly because they were played so far away from the band's sort of, you know, power areas of the time. Like everybody had every Fillmore East show or every Winterland show, but they didn't have the Sportatorium shows in their collection. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good point because I mean this month, uh, I think May seventy seven that began with them playing this multi night run at the at the Palladium in New York. I think they yeah. started at the end of April and it went into into May. And you think, well, that would be an obvious thing to to put out or, or for people to have, but you know maybe that was something that was already in circulation and you know it's not the new york city show that ends up being historic it's the one up in ithaca new york you know a couple hours upstate that's the one that ends up being great and you know there's probably a little mythology that gets baked into that too where it's a show that a lot of people probably didn't go to or they heard about it later uh you know and and then that, that ends up being the one that is historic or you're considered one of the best ever. from this episode of 36 from the Vault, where we're celebrating the music of the Grateful Dead, to tell you about another group of people who are celebrating the music of the Grateful Dead, and that is the Skull and Roses Festival that's taking place in Ventura County in California uh, from April 2nd to the 5th. And it's basically just a bunch of musicians and bands playing Grateful Dead music. We talk about Grateful Dead music here on the podcast, but there's nothing better than actually being in a field or a desert or wherever you may be in listening to this music. And uh, there's some really cool groups playing there this year. You got Billy and the Kids. You have ooh, O'Teal and Friends. I'd actually like to see, see that. O'Teal, of course, he's the bass player for Dead & Co. Played in the Allman Brothers for a long time. 
hell of a musician. That'd be great to see. So go see the Skull and Roses Festival. That's again, April 2nd to the 5th in Ventura County, California. So yeah, so be sure to check that out. Sounds like a great time. Okay, now back to 36 from the vault. So the number one song in the country uh, this week in 1977, Sir Duke by Stevie Wonder. It was uh, the first of three weeks at number one uh, from yeah. Songs in the Key of Life, one of the greatest albums ever made. Uh, yeah. So pretty good song. Talk about another uh, guy who managed the disco transition well, I guess. I don't know if you'd call any Stevie Wonder song straight up disco, but it's like he he rode the uh, the cultural shift well, I guess. At, at least like three or four different cultural shifts, really. Well, and, you know, another big song from this time that, you know, has no disco in it at all, and by a band that would end up being very reactionary against disco, uh, is Hotel California by the oh, Eagles. Oh, who's that by? <laughs> it's by the Eagles. You know that song, The Disco Strangler, from the long run? You know, the, have you ever heard that song, The Disco Strangler? <laughs> I don't know if I have. That's a real song? Oh, yeah. yeah. That's on the long run. That's like on the next Eagles record and like the last Eagles right. record of, of the 70s. That's uh, like their yeah. Steve Dahl Disco Sucks song? Yeah, I mean, I think... I'm trying to... I haven't heard that song in a long time, but I think the... <laughs> the, the there's sort of like a... I don't know if there's like a serial killer element to that song, but it's like set in the, in the like disco it, yeah. world. So it's like, yeah. you know... it. It's sort of like pre-cruising, you know, like you know that movie mm. Cruising that William Friedkin made. Yeah, oh yeah. It's yeah. like pre that. It's you know, like they 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 uh, were ahead of the curve on that with the Disco Strangler. But yeah, Hotel California was a big song uh, that year. Dancing Queen, I guess, would be on the other end of the divide of the right. rock disco divide. Uh, a song that like was probably controversial at the time among rockers, like that you can't like ABBA. Although I feel like now. It's pretty much unanimous that ABBA is great. I, I I can't really find. I don't really know anyone who doesn't like ABBA. You know. It, yeah, you'd I, have to I be feel... yeah, pretty sad person to uh, <laughs> be anti ABBA. Not to you be a, to... a poptimist, but on the, well, on the Grateful Dead podcast. But that would be like the like the staunchest rockist in the world. You know, who would be holding out against ABBA? You know, I feel like at this point. <laughs> I feel like that war that war has long since been fought and won by right. the Swedish. They're so hard to hate. These adorable Swedes. I mean, come on, who who can hate that? Well, yeah, and like yeah. you know, and you know, and they play real instruments and you know all that kind of jazz. If you like, if you want to <laughs> go down their that own road, songs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that's the number one song, Stevie Wonder. The yeah, number one album. Another one in there. I think it's number one in a couple weeks. Is "Don't Leave Me This Way," which is. An awesome disco song, one of the best oh. disco songs. Absolutely, and it, it I, and it's it's so interesting that like I mean again going back to like the Dead and having this like disco phase, I feel like they were pretty early adopters of it. I'd have to like look up like when all the other rock bands went disco, but I mean we're like right in the thick of like the rock disco wars here. Well, you know, I mean, it's a it's a couple years before Disco Demolition Night, I guess. But well, even like, like, um, like you know, we were talking about the music can't be stopped, which is a song that 
comes up on Dick's Picks Volume 3, that song was on Blues for Allah, which is like from 75. And like, even like the, right. like the, they definitely discoed it up more live, but like on the record, it's like pretty dancey. Like, you know, it's definitely like, I, I don't know if disco was as much of a like catch all term in the outer culture in 75. I think then it would have probably, probably just been looked at as like, kind of like a danceable R&B type song. But yeah, you know the dead were dabbling in that, and they were they're like surprisingly good at it. Like I, I like their kind of discoy songs. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, like Shakedown Street being, you know, probably the pinnacle of that. Um, right, that's always a great song to hear live. Um, and I think you know the dead started out as like a dancey R and B band, and it's funny, you know, it, it it makes sense that Dancing in the Street would be the one that they decide to make their like most disco song in a lot of ways because they've been playing that since you know the beginning almost and it was like their big like r&b like let's get down rave up in the 60s and so they were like what are people getting down to in the 70s yeah we'll put a, a disco beat on it and we'll have bob sing it and it'll be just as good yeah that was really like their sort of song to be like we're gonna put whatever's going on in music right now like that imprint on our interpretation of the song because when they would play that in the 80s with like the really (laughs) distinctive like backing vocals from brent you know which are kind of overbearing (laughs) but it's like very (laughs) yacht rocky it's very yacht rocky in the 80s like their version of it 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 kind of sounds like their attempt at doing like a doobie brothers or michael mcdonald type uh, yeah. you know, song in the eighties. So yeah, in, we can maybe talk about that more later, but just the evolution of like their interpretation of that song, it really kind of goes with like whatever time period that they're in. Uh, so it's pretty fascinating with that cover. Um, yeah. So, so the number one album, uh, this week was, uh, an album called rumors by Fleetwood Mac. Hmm, yeah. Which, which I assume was just like number one all year. I guess it it would it would be that album and like the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. You know, speaking of rock versus disco battles in 1977, um, I think that and and Saturday Night Fever came out so late that I don't think that hit the charts until 78. Yeah, it's true. Now, if you look probably... at the if if you look at the number ones for 77, it's so the other so we have the rock versus disco war going on on the singles chart. And then you have an albums war going on as well, which is Rumors against Hotel California. And they basically like flip-flop for a while, and then Rumors just takes over right around this time. It's number one until December, except for one week, where it is beaten out by Barry Manilow Live. Probably also another coked-up live album from 1977. (laughs) Was Barry on coke? Did Barry do coke? Was anybody not on Coke in 1977? Barry might not have been on Coke. I feel like his music was always pretty mellow. If there was one person, it's probably Barry Manilow. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) But correct Uh, me if I'm wrong. Someone on Twitter, if you have good Barry Manilow Coke stories, please share them, because I'm sure that would be amazing. (laughs) Yeah, hashtag Barry on Coke. Send them our way. Um, And then finally, uh, Linda Ronstadt, who never did Coke, I'm sure, uh, in December. (laughs) displaced rumors um but you know so the dead are going disco they're feeling the the winds of culture in the air and going with it um they also around this time they've just finished recording terrapin station with uh keith olsen producing it 
infamously producing Terrapin Station. I think most people would agree, since he like overdubbed the shit out of it. Uh, and they got Keith Olsen hot off his success with uh, Fleetwood Mac's previous album, the self-titled Fleetwood Mac album, which is the first uh, Lindsay and Stevie album. Uh, what you, I think there's a lot of weird parallels between uh, Fleetwood Mac and The Dead in this time. And uh, I almost kind of feel like The Dead were maybe trying to ape the Mac's moves a little bit. Do you think... Well, Any yeah, that I mean, was going on. I mean, they also hired a husband and wife for a, a couple, I guess, uh, for different reasons, obviously. But I, I feel like they were maybe trying to inch in on that territory a little bit. It would make sense because, you know, Fleetwood Mac went through a pretty dramatic reboot in the mid-70s. You know, they were a blues band from Britain in the 60s, came out around the same time that the Grateful Dead did. And then they end up hiring Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks in 74 and becoming just this enormously popular pop band that's associated with Southern California. You know, so I'm sure it was either the dead or someone from their record company thought, well, if this sixties band can be rebooted as a pop band, you know, maybe the Grateful Dead can do the same. And we'll talk about this when we talk about the show. Like one of the songs that they play uh at this sportatorium show is a song called Sunrise. Yeah. Which is, I think, the only song that Donna wrote for a Grateful Dead record that like made the record, and that definitely sounds like a Fleetwood Mac wannabe song. Like on the record, it's like so orchestrated. It's very soft rock sounding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's but it's just not as like <laughs> doesn't have nearly as much record making craft that the, as Fleetwood <laughs> Mac did. Like you know. Fleetwood Mac had Lindsey Buckingham, like this studio genius. Right. Like, there's no one in, exactly. in The Grateful Dead that was even close to that uh, in terms of you know working in the studio and making great sounding songs. So that was the big mm-hmm. difference there. But yeah, it's you know it's another instance of you know The Grateful Dead being out on an island by themselves and yet totally soaking up what's happening in the culture, whether it's disco or Fleetwood Mac, you know, and absorbing that into their own world with mixed success like the disco Mm -hmm. thing i actually think is surprisingly effective at times with the dead whereas making a professional slick pop rock record with the producer of the fleetwood mac self self title record not as successful (laughs) not really what you want the dead to be doing no they kind of just put sax solos on everything. <laughs> or maybe Keith Olsen did. Oh, uh, that the is... Terrapin Station album has a lot of bad decisions on it, I would say. That is, th- what is it with jam bands in the studio and like horn sections? Where they're like, you know what, yeah. we're, we're a great live band, but in the studio, let's put some horns. Because, you know, The Dead did, the, did that. Like, Fish has done that. There's like so many examples of just... Like why are you put? Like, why horn sections? Why is this something you want to do? They they all want to be jazz bands at heart or something. I don't know. Or or you want to be like a like I mean, a soul band or something. You you, you want that yeah. kind of like R and B feel? I don't know what it is, but it never works. And on Dead yeah. Records, some of the horn sections that they've had or sax solos are like <laughs> it's like barely competent. It's like horrible. <laughs> Yeah, it's rough. I mean, the only, I mean, like, I think it works on Without a Net, like when they played with 
Bradford Marsalis, like some of the sax stuff that he does on on that live record, I actually think is pretty cool. That's the only instance of like horns being cool on a Grateful Dead record that I could think of. Yeah, I'm trying to think. There was some like Charles Lloyd stuff early on, right? But never on a record, I don't think. I don't know, man. Just it's yeah, it's pretty thin. It's rough. pretty pretty thin gruel to spread over like 30 years of uh, musical output, like successful right. horn sections for the Grateful Dead. Yeah, I've, and the horns like are almost the least of it with Terrapin Station, uh, <laughs> right. the song especially, which has just like crazy strings and like a choir at the end and it i mean they just they went all out for it and uh it's one of the things i kind of appreciate about that day of the dead version from a few years ago because they were like we're also gonna go all out (laughs) for this terrapin station because like it is a pretty ridiculous song but i mean well, it's they, beautiful. They kind of turn it into like a Disney soundtrack at some point. It's so wild too because you know that album. I think it came out in July of '77. Yeah, yeah. And the Dead had been playing it live for five months before that came out. I think like the first show of '77 is uh, February 26, '77, which was just released as a Dave's pick in 2019. Mm. Another Betty board, by the way. And that show opens with Terrapin Station. And they play they play a very short version of Terrapin Station in in this show, the Dick's Picks Volume Three. Um, it's pretty wild that they were playing that song for so long that people right. didn't know it. Um, and live, and I they think play it sounds every, phenomenal. They play everything but Passenger off the album in this show. So they play what is right. it, four of the five songs, five of the six, yeah. Which good good choice, not playing Passenger, by the way. You know, you, you Oh, I love Passenger. No, I'm gonna I'm gonna argue for Passenger. Really? Passenger's great. Yeah. Uh, it's all right. It's all right. I'm glad that you stood for Passenger. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um okay, yeah. so the number the number one movie in America was Annie Hall, which eventually won Best Picture, uh directed by Woody Allen, who, you know, was flying high at this point. Uh, you know, it's a good movie. Yeah, it's classic movie. You know, and uh, Woody was like two years away from making Manhattan, and it was like, okay, this is the first signs of trouble with Woody when he made Manhattan. Yeah. But we we weren't there yet. You know, he wasn't making movies about uh, being with like teenage girls yet. Uh, it wasn't you know confessing in public, basically whatever was going on behind the scenes. Uh, but of course, the big movie news is that this show takes place three days before Star Wars came out. And, uh, I mean, are we confident that Star Wars was, like, a big deal in the Grateful Dead world? I mean, they were on tour at this point, but do you think Jerry was, like, aware of Star Wars and wanted to see it? Like, has he he ever talked about Star Wars? Yeah, there is a show, I think, where he plays the Close Encounters theme. Like right. they had just seen Close Encounters, and then they, it works its way into the show somehow. And I kind of feel if you if you were into Close Encounters, you were probably into Star Wars. I think that's but, fair to say. But like Close Encounters to me is more intellectual than Star Wars is. Yeah, you know, it has more of like a you know communicating with aliens. It's pretty trippy at the end. Like Star yeah. Wars, like Close Encounters, it's not two thousand one, but it's like more psychedelic than Star Wars is. Star well, Wars you know, is... th- that makes it makes me think like Star Wars has become so processed now 
But in 1977, I mean, people, I guess, absolutely did drugs and went to see Star Wars, right? Like, yeah, that's, Star that's Wars, probably true. Like a big drug movie? Like, Well, I don't think it would have been... Well, I don't know. Maybe people did acid and saw Star Wars. I, I think you definitely would like smoke pot and see Star Wars. I could see that. I don't know if you would yeah. trip during it. I don't know. I don't know if that would... Because... Again, like Close Encounters, he, like he goes into the spaceship at the end, and there's like tons of lights, and you know you can vibe out on that if you're tripping. But like, I don't know. Like, would Darth Man. Vader freak you out if you were <laughs> on acid? I don't know. Ship going in the hyperspace is kind of trippy. I would. I, don't know. I would. Yeah. If I was going to do acid during the first, during one of the first three Star Wars, I would say Jedi, because I think like the Ewoks would be like pretty cool. On acid, yeah. it'd be kind of like a nice thing. Although the the confrontation with his dad at the end would probably fuck me up. That would be a little too personal yeah. to go Pretty through harsh. on acid. There could be like a real catharsis during that moment. <laughs> um, Jabba's Jabba's palace, though that that'd be good. That'd be good. Good acid, good acid scene. Cantina in the original would be good too. So yeah, that'd be good. Yeah. yeah. So also spring of seventy seven, yeah. Eraserhead yeah. came out. He, David Lynch. Speaking of drug movies, yeah, you got a racer head. I wonder, like, if it, that probably took a while to reach, you know, everyone. Like, I wonder. I don't really know much about the initial release of Racerhead. My sense is that people saw that over the course of like two or three years. Yeah, it was like one of those movies that was like a midnight movie at like one theater in New York, but for three years, and eventually everybody saw it, and it kind of spread from there. But, I mean, it was, yeah, cult of the cult type movies. Speaking of movies about, like, parenthood, that's, like, one of the most frightening movies about having a kid. Absolutely. That's... Maybe one of the more accurate movies about having a kid. <laughs> uh, and also, the Grateful Dead movie came out right after this. In June. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it came out in June. And, uh, of course, documenting... I guess the you know, the shows that the dead played before their hiatus, like when they went on hi- right. hiatus in '74, mm-hmm. and uh, I think you know there's parts of that movie that are kind of boring, but overall, I think it's a really good movie. I like that movie. Yeah, I was watching it a little bit before we were recording and forgot that like the first ten minutes are like Terry Gilliam style animation, right? Which speaking of movies to do drugs and go see, I guess probably was very exciting. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I was going to say like, it's the, the movie is more known, I think to me and other deadheads as being like the project that broke Jerry. Right. And kind of like brought, it brought them back in some ways cause they needed money bad and he depleted the entire, uh, Grateful Dead financial accounts trying to get that thing done. But I mean, it's, a, it's an all right movie. It's interesting that it is, you know, kind of similar thematically and structurally to The Last Waltz, but nowhere near as well regarded. <laughs> well, <laughs> Maybe because Jerry directed it instead of Martin Scorsese, but yeah. There is like, there is like an interesting like side, uh, you know, conversation about like rock stars wanting to be film directors in the 70s and like how it like never worked out, you know, like with Jerry Garcia with this movie, Bob Dylan with Ronaldo and Clara like Neil Young with his various like film projects. I remember like, yeah. I, I think like Paul McCartney was like one of the, was basically the director of like magical mystery tour. 
in the 60s, which was like a pretty big failure, like the first really big failure for the Beatles. Right, uh, yeah. So there's this idea like, oh, hey, I'm a genius rock star. I will also be a film director and I will be great <laughs> at it. And right. I won't really have a screenplay or really any idea of what I'm doing. Uh, but I'll pull it off because that's I'm just that big of a genius. Uh, right. So you don't really see that as much anymore. Um, and nobody around me says no, so, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So number one show is not All in the Family. It's Happy Days, and, like, Laverne and Shirley was up there, too. So all the, they were like, one Gary, and two, yeah. All the Gary Marshall shows set in Milwaukee. The like, Garyverse, Yeah. <laughs> the, the extended Gary cinema, cinematic universe. Yeah, the, the GMU. I don't know what you call it. The, the, it's the right. GMU. Yeah, and, exactly. And, and you're gonna have Mork and Mindy in here, like like a couple years later. Eventually, yeah. Speaking of cocaine, <laughs> speaking and of like trippy like aliens in the 70s. Right. Yeah. Um, it's bringing all the threads together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the scene here. You know, we've got a lot of kind of trippy things going on in the culture. We have science fiction. We have the GMU. We have Stevie Wonder, disco and soft rock. All of it in the background. The dead is soaking it all up. And they take it into Mm -hmm. this show, May 22nd, 1977. So let's get into the show. a city without its music. The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Um, so, out of all the shows we've talked about so far, I feel like this release is like the closest to the actual concert. I mean, there's songs that they cut out, they messed around with the with the song order again. Um, but when I listen to like the actual show and the Dick's Pick series, I don't know. Like I, the stuff that's not there, I don't miss it as much as I did with the with the other ones. Uh, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I think they're like inching towards the idea of documenting the show a little more carefully or a little more completely. And again, it seemed like the main objection at this point was just that they didn't want to go to more than two CDs because they weren't sure that it would be worth it, I guess, for production costs to sell a more than two CD set, which is kind of funny to think about today when CDs are like dirt cheap. But yeah, I think, you know, they they don't really, they don't change the order. They just 
uh, chop out some sections of the show. And it very much feels like a first set, second set sort of deal, the way it broke down on the two discs here. And yeah, I mean, I think it's like, you know, I listened to the full show and I don't feel like they really dropped anything totally essential. So the argument is basically just, you know, are you missing out on some key, like sort of flow of the entire show by losing, you know, one of... 500 El Pasos that they played <laughs> or, or is it okay to just kind of to get around that there is one thing that I think probably they should have tried to squeeze on and I didn't actually clock it out if they even had a chance but the Peggio from this show is insanely good <laughs> like it started out kind of slow and I'm like oh yeah you can leave Peggio off it's not that great a song I mean it's pretty good but it's like you know it's slow and there's a different kind of vibe they're going for with this release but then like there's a jerry solo on it that like gave me shivers like it was so good and i think it's maybe just a case of like a may 77 show is actually tougher to chop down to fit two cds because even the sort of innocuous songs like peggio could be like a classic version just because they were playing so well at that time Yeah, I mean, I love that version, too. And I, I get into Peggio. I like any time they play Peggio, I'm, I'm usually down for it because it's usually a really good Jerry vocal and he will bust a really beautiful guitar solo at some point uh, when he when they play that song. I'm guessing maybe they cut that because uh, in the first set, they have sh- uh, Sugary, a couple songs before that, and they ended up keeping that. There's a, it's like a 15-minute version and maybe the thought was that it was too similar because they're both that. sort of these mid-tempo ballads. Maybe that's my guess. Yeah. Because personally, I'd rather have Peggio on here than Samson and Delilah. Yeah. Like, and I will say that, like, you know, we, we've we talked about on the show, like, how we give each other bathroom breaks. Like, you could take a bathroom break during the album. Like, if you don't want to hear a particular song, mm-hmm. you can skip it. And Samson and Delilah is the song I, I, I bathroom break the hell out of that song. So I'm like, yeah. I don't need to hear Samson and Delilah. <laughs> no, I'm like, I, especially like, on, uh, like, once we get to the second disc, you know, there's a lot of really cool stuff on there. I'm like, I'm not listening to Samson and Delilah for like seven or eight minutes. I want to get to this other stuff. Right. So I don't have the patience for that. Uh, so, but anyway, let's, let's go back to the first set. Yeah. Uh, the first disc. And, they left the tuning on here. Right. The opening tuning. And 
it's it, they actually gave it a title too. Right. Well, and, I mean, it's an actual song. Right. Like, what is that song? It. I mean, it's like an old like Italian folk song, isn't it? So I was going to mention this. This is like a like an only '90s kids would know sort of thing. But did you? Do you there was a commercial for a game called The Grape Escape. Do you recall seeing this okay. commercial that was on during no. every like Saturday morning cartoon kids show in the nineties? Uh, that was set to Funiculi, Funicula. And like every time I even remember when I when I bought this. So this is the first Dix Picks I bought, by the way, just to sneak in some autobiographical detail and now we're into the show. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I remember like that that it's one of those commercials that has been like carved into my brain from seeing it a thousand times on Saturday morning cartoons. I even went on YouTube and found it and confirmed my memory that it is uh, a, a song about the game Grape Escape set to Funiculi Funicula. But no, I love oh, that. No shit. I'm, I'm, I'm proud. I feel like this is a big step in the Dick's Picks, like, uh, confidence that they would include even just this little, like, 30 seconds of the band tuning and playing some like random song that popped into jerry's head uh because like as we talked about the first two i think sort of overdid it trying to make it turn it into like a professional package uh by only keeping like the best parts of the show and even like editing out like a really bad phil lesh bass solo from the first volume uh because phil didn't want it on there but also just because they were like this is this is terrible we need to like tighten it up a little bit in post uh but the fact that you know this is unless you count feedback from live dead (laughs) this is like the most sort of realistic like moments of a given dead show where they're just kind of screwing around on stage uh for a few seconds is is great because now we're getting into like the the phase of dick's picks where they're not ashamed of who the dead are uh they're gonna show them in all their uh you know sloppy glory so, Funiculi, Funicula, it's the uh, the secret MVP of Dick's Picks Volume Three. We're yeah, we're we're big fans of tuning up on this podcast. So you know, anytime we get some tuning up on a Dick's Picks, it's like it's like manna from the from the heavens for us. So yeah, <laughs> I, I I really I, I really dig having that on there too. Uh, so they go from there. They go into the music never stopped, and. As I said before, this song originally appeared on Blues for Allah, which was two years earlier uh, before the show. And I feel like this is a good time to mention that, you know, the first two Dick's picks were during the Donna era. And Donna is not on either album. And she seems right. pretty conspicuous in her absence. It seems pretty pointed that there were shows selected where she was not on the album. But you can hear her on this song, and I think she sounds really good. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, and Donna definitely gets a, you know, she gets a bum rap from a lot of people. I think the thing that people always think about with Donna is playing in the band, like her vocal part in that song, where she's like very kind of like wailing on that song. And it can be like a little much when you hear that. Yeah. But uh, I think on this record, like she sounds great. And like, yeah. On this song, she sounds really good. I think, you know, we'll get to this later. Dancing in the Street, like her and Bob sound, I think, really good. And singing, Mm -hmm. like, pretty close to each other, you know, and doing some pretty cool things vocally. So, 
just like the i think donna at her best brings a very necessary feminine edge feminine warmth to the dead uh that really kind of helps their funkier material go over as well as it does yeah i mean so you have also donna basically replacing phil on backing vocals which, a big you know, a big upgrade phil. a big upgrade. yeah it's an upgrade uh i think you know i think it really does boil down to like during the wall of sound era donna just could not hear herself <laughs> and like people forget that like again getting back to the dead being sort of sloppy in their entire operation i don't think their monitor situation was so hot uh through any part of their history but especially in sort of the wall of sound i don't even think they had monitors i think they just were listening to themselves from behind that's why they had those weird two microphone mics so every time people rag on donna for the play and scream or anything else sort of pre-hiatus that's kind of what i think of is that you know she was a professional singer and professional singers like need to be able to hear themselves to stay on key uh and by 77 i think they had figured that out and she is great i think this whole show this whole set she's really good and i think uh you know it is good evidence for our podcast being you know officially pro donna that you know donna at her best i think added a really nice uh element to the dead sound that you only get for a couple of years sort of in its in its peak uh condition yeah, I mean, I think... But we we also got to talk about... Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, with the other thing with Donna, too, is that, like, you know, they just didn't really do anything in a conscious way to try to spotlight her at all. You know, they didn't really, I think, know what to do with her. You know, in this show, it's noteworthy because she actually gets to sing a song as as the right. lead vocalist. And you think, if you have a professional singer in a band full of non-professional singers, you know, and of course, Jerry being a great singer. I mean, I love Jerry's voice, but you think you could maybe spotlight her a little bit more and take advantage Mm -hmm. of like just the sound of like a female voice and like the contrast that that can have when you have a bunch of dudes in your band, you know, just just the power of that. They didn't really, I think, know, know how to harness that. And again, I think similar to the Betty Canner Jackson situation, there's probably some good old-fashioned rock and roll sexism in there as well yeah, where it's absolutely. like well you're a woman take a back seat you know we're the dudes in charge you know don't get in the way so yeah i think she suffers mm-hmm. from that too so yeah we're standing up for donna in the and show this will not be the last time we stand up for donna you know we're pro donna all right on here and pro donna but uh another first dick's picks appearance here on volume three that I am a little less pro yes. <laughs> of, but interested to hear your opinion on, uh, is Mr. Mickey Hart. Yes. Uh, and, you know, more notably, uh, our first brush with two drummer dead here in the Dick's Picks experience. And, I mean, you hear it right away <laughs> on Music Never Stopped. I mean, as we talked about many times already, that it it's very disco-y, but, I mean... Two Drummer Dead is is a whole different animal from the sort of Billy Alone experience we've been getting in the first two volumes. What, what What's your Two Drummer Dead take? You know, in 77, actually, I I tend to like it. I, and also, I don't know, there was something about their, you know, them playing in the late 70s where 
I actually think it sounds pretty good. You know, there's something that happens in the 80s, like where I feel like the drums get lost a lot in the mixes. And maybe it was because they're playing these huge venues and like the, the rhythm section just is not as powerful. Like, as, yeah. as they got into these bigger venues, and I don't really know why that is. If that's the mix, or or what, it, it just doesn't swing as hard as it does in the seventies. Um, and so, I feel like they had a good swing in the seventies, in seventy seven, that I tend to like. You know, even with some of the weird, again, like disco stuff that they're laying, layering into songs where it does not belong the cowboy songs, the more kind of story-oriented songs. Yeah, it's like, you just wonder, like you said, are they playing a goof on Bob by doing this? Just trying to speed up these songs? Or just to burn through them, maybe? Get them over with? Um, But, I don't know. I mean, you know, Mickey, in a way, is as much of a... um, a punching bag as Donna is. I, I feel like Binky takes a lot of abuse that he doesn't necessarily yeah. deserve. Yeah, you know, I do tend to think that like that early seventies dead era when it was just Bill. Like, I I do like that a lot. There is a sort of clarity to that, uh, and I think Bill is. I prefer his drumming to Mickey's, but I don't know. Like, he's not really bothering me. I have to say, on this show or like other seventy-seven shows. Yeah, I think the deal with Two Drummer Dead, for me at least, is that if they keep the tempo high, I like it a lot. Because I think it adds sort of a dimension that Billy can't do on his own. Like, Mickey is adding some, like, you know, unusual accents to, like, Billy playing at, at, at you know, his typical full speed. But as things slow down, and they're going to slow down basically from this point on... Uh, they are just really bad at playing in sync. <laughs> like, right. I don't. I don't know any other way to put it. Like, and it just drags the whole band down so much. And I'm. I'm willing to be convinced. I'm excited to go through these '80s shows with fresh ears, and you know, I. I'll, I'll allow you to convince me to appreciate these things, but like, I mean, it'll be old news by the time this comes out. But I just reviewed the their '90s compilation they put out, the Ready or Not. CD. I don't know if you've heard that yet. I guess it's at this point not, not at the top of my out. list, to be honest. Yeah. Not that. You know, um, there's a lot. I, we're, I'm listening to like a lot of dead stuff lately for this podcast, and like, yeah, yeah, the '90s thing. Like that. Even though I am an appreciator of '90s dead, like that, I, I that hasn't been at the top of my list lately. Yeah, and it's just like I mean, especially going from shows like this to that, <laughs> like in in you know a, a short amount of time. It's just like I, I'm all. I'm usually all for bands that have multiple drummers. I think it's a great thing to see live, but there's just something about their chemistry that has never worked and has been so baffling to me that yeah, they've I mean, stuck with it for so long. I think with the '80s and '90s, like I said, there there's like a certain swing and a certain power that is just gone by then from the rhythm section. Like, and it right. becomes a situation where you have to sort of learn to appreciate the ramshackle quality of it. And like, the, right. I would liken it to like, like when you listen to crazy horse and you're like, well, you know, this isn't like as in the pocket as you would expect maybe, or hope for in a different context. But like, there's something about the messiness of it in the midst of all of this sort of 
other weirdness with the guitars and like the weird keyboard tones that like kind of creates a very interesting sound. <laughs> so it's like it is like a different band. It, if you're right. if you're going into it expecting it to sound like 1977 or 73, right. you will be frustrated. But if you can appreciate what they're doing in the 80s as its own animal, I think it is a pretty interesting thing to get into. Um, but enough about that. that enough about the yeah. '80s right now. We have lots we'll of time to talk there. about the '80s. Let's talk yeah. about "Sugary," which is the, yeah. the next track in the set list. And I love this version. Oh, this is a so long version. It's so good. Fifteen-minute version, and it's basically an excuse just for Jerry to take a walk with his guitar, play very mm. kind of leisurely, beautiful guitar solos. And it was interesting for me to listen to some of the other May shows in the context of this Dick's Picks. Like I said earlier, I, I downloaded the May 26th show from Baltimore, which you can find on uh, Live Archive or on Relisten. It's an audience tape, but it's actually a pretty good-sounding audience tape. And they play... Um, Jerry does an 18-minute version of Sugary in that set. And I think it's in about the same part of the set list. I think it's like the second yeah. or third song. So, you know... Another example of, I think, the Dead having certain moves set up at this time where they knew that certain songs would maybe come. Like, they weren't playing Sugary every night, but they were probably playing it every third or fourth show or so. Mm-hmm. So Jerry definitely played it enough where he's not playing it the exact same way, but he knew how to play this song at this time. And he could he could extend it in a really kind of easy way that sounded great um right. which i think is a real strength of this period like if you're only going to listen to like one show or a couple shows from may it's like wow they sound so great whereas if you listen to everything it's maybe not as exciting as some other dead eras because they're not changing it as much but on this record in particular if you just listen to this version it is i think one of the great sugaries that I've heard, I, I kind of think of it as like my, one of my favorite ones, like a go-to sugary for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think this might have been like one of the top reasons that Dick put this particular show out. There's not as much like out there about his decision for choosing this show, other than I think there was demand for a May 77 show that wasn't Cornell. He didn't want to put Cornell out because he said everybody already has a great tape, so there's no reason to put it out. Um but the the one sort of interview I keep going back to early on um, with Dick, the only thing he really mentions about this show is the sugary. And I think that it, it like the Here Comes Sunshine from Dick's Fakes Volume 1, I feel like this is sort of like his featured performance that he really wanted to emphasize on this release. And I think it's, I think it's the best thing on the whole volume, to be honest. Right. Oh, yeah. And, and I, I, I didn't. I didn't really, I came to Sugary late, and again, it sort of factors into this, not to keep dragging us back into the 80s and 90s, but I think later on, Sugary becomes just like a chore to listen to, because it gets really slow. Uh, But the fact that this one is so long, but still pretty brisk, and just has basically like three different jams within it. I mean, every verse and chorus pretty much gets a jam afterwards, like a long Jerry solo, or a long sort of full band build. Uh, I mean, it just, it, it moves so well. And I, I also went and listened to a couple other sugaries from the month just to be like, were all of them like this? And I think this one 
really stand sort of head and shoulders above the rest from that month. So I could see it definitely jumping out to Dick and being like, this is this is the show to put out, if only for this, you know, 16 minutes right here. I mean, it, like, the, the, the Jerry solos are so good, and they're so, like, like they feel very, like, banjo-y to me, which is, you know, was his original instrument. Like, they feel very bluegrassy in a way that stands out, especially in a show like this, where it's not a very rootsy era of the Grateful Dead at all. But it's kind of like him transporting that sort of like circular playing that you get from bluegrass or banjo into that format. And it, it, it just sounds so great. It's like the kind of guitar solos that only Jerry could play. And only sort of Jerry could play in this particular era of Jerry. So it's, it's great. is interesting too that you know we were talking about this being kind of a coked up era and we talked a lot about the disco-iness of this Grateful Dead era and yet this song is it moves briskly but it is it, it is pretty relaxed you know you don't feel the intensity or you know the cokeness that you might feel in other parts of this uh, set. Yeah. And it's interesting that, you know, this is such a highlight. And then we also talked about the Peggio that didn't make it, that has a similar vibe to Sugary. Um, and maybe it's just because it was earlier in the set, you know, they did more bumps maybe later on, you know, in the set or during the set break. And that's when things maybe started to pick up the pace a little bit. Although it definitely starts to pick up after after this song and you know into the latter half of the first set mm. uh things get pretty get pretty uh, hype but right yeah it, it is this is sort of like an like a sea like an like an island of tranquility on this record yeah, yeah it's just very pleasant to hear and like you said 
how it's pretty laid back, but it's not boring. It doesn't drag. Uh, it, it just kind of has like a great kind of zone that it lands into where it justifies being 15 minutes long. It doesn't feel like 15 minutes when you're listening to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the next on the record, of course, after Sugary, they play El Paso, Peggio, New Minglewood Blues, which is like a song that comes up many times in May of 77, In Front of the Devil. All those songs were cut. And then they go into Lazy Lightning and Supplication, which I believe ha- those songs have never appeared on a Grateful Dead record to my, I don't think. Have they? Yeah. I don't think I had, they were, I, were they? I, I totally had like a Mandela effect where I thought it was on uh, Terrapin or Shakedown Street and had to look them up today and be like, no, actually, <laughs> they never they never put it on a studio album. But it, it, it shows up so much in this era that it just feels like it, it should be on one of those. Yeah, because they started playing it like in 76, I think, when they came back, basically. Mm-hmm. And so it was definitely like a staple of the late 70s. Um, for me, like Lazy Lightning, I don't really... Lazy, Lazy Lightning's okay. I, I actually do like Supplication a lot. I think that's a pretty awesome... I like that back half. It has that sort of... It reminds me of uh, Can't You Hear Me Knocking, hmm, the Rolling yeah. Stones song from Sticky Fingers, where they kind of go into that Santana back half of the song. Yeah. And obviously the front part of Can't You Hear Me Knocking is awesome. But like the back half is like kind of the bulk of it, and they kind of that's a that's like as jammy as the Rolling Stones get right. on on record, um, and the Dead kind of go into the to a similar like Santana zone on Supplication, and I think it sounds pretty cool. And that's not really something they they really did all that much. Yeah, I mean I think Lazy Lightning you mentioned earlier uh, that you can kind of hear the seeds of the '80s in this year this month the show and i totally agree with that and i feel like lazy lightning kind of gets at that because it's a very like smooth bob song <laughs> like it just has <laughs> right. like that that sort of like you know doobies quality to it i feel like in some ways uh that i like it i mean i think it's it's kind of a fun catchy song like as as bob songs go it's it's pretty good um but yeah it, it definitely feels like foreshadowing in a lot of ways that aren't all good. <laughs> right. Yeah, and you know, I think I probably like Bob songs a little more than you do. Like I you know, in terms of like, you know, two songs that go together, I I like Saint of Circumstance and The Lost Sailor, you know, mm-hmm. which I think maybe replace this as a as a Bob showcase, you know, like like as a two-song Bob showcase, you know, going right. into the 80s, which I think those two songs are definitely in the vein of what you're talking about, sort of smooth prog Bob songs, you know, there's, there's a yacht rock element. There's kind of like a prog rock element, but it's more smooth than like trippy. And, uh, but yeah, I, I don't hate lazy lightning, but yeah, for me, it's sort of like the preamble, to supplication. Like I want to get to that. And I think the band sounds really good, uh, on that song. And great fill too. Um, Good fill fills between the uh, yeah we, between the verses. Yeah, I mean we we haven't talked about Phil a ton. I mean we talked about him in the context of the Betty boards, like how 
great the bottom end sounds on like her recordings. But yeah, Phil sounds so good on this record. And it is it is kind of amazing to see like how good of like, of like a like he could play in the pocket. He could be like a pretty funky bass player in his own way. Uh and he's really bringing it on this record. It, 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 I mean the bass sound on on this is like I think is what really kind of pushes it over the top for me in terms of like the other Dick's picks that we've listened to so far. Like it's not really even close in terms of just like the, how good the bottom end sounds on Dick's picks volume three. Yeah, I agree. He's it. It sounds great even on my less than optimal stereo when I was listening back today, and even in like the archive version, like I was listening to to, to that for the uh, the songs that were cut, and the Betty board sounds just as good. Uh, on the the unofficial release as it does on the official release so it's it's treat so they play ramble on rose next they cut that which i'm fine with i like ramble on rose all right i I, but i'm not like ever dying to hear that live i don't know i don't know how you feel about ramble on rose yeah it's good but yeah you know if you gotta cut something yeah it's, it's expendable so speaking but, of funky, you know the idea. Yeah, speaking of funky Phil, and going speaking of like bump bumps, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, there was. Uh, there we was get into diff- dancing in the street. So, yeah. what what you know, cutting all that sort of middle stuff out does, I think, is make this feel like even more cokey than it was probably in the moment. Because uh, there were, I, looking back at the 77 set list, there are not that many shows where they played both Music Never Stops and Dancing in the Streets in the same set, or even in the same show. And putting them, like, basically two songs apart, it's like, it's a lot. It is, like, concentrated disco dead. And I like it, but it's very... That is the one thing that is sort of artificial about the way this volume presents this show, I think, is that it's like, if you listen to this, you would think that they were like just basically doing this all the time when really there were a bunch of you know folk and sort of countryish songs breaking up the flow of the set a lot more than it would be apparent here yeah i mean it's definitely not maybe totally representative of the show although again i i will say you know kind of going back to the point of how the cuts from this show feel less obtrusive to me I'm fine with like cutting Ramble on Rose out of there and going right to the bumps off of the amplifier and you know going right into dancing in the street you know like I I really like that vibe and it and it does I feel even if it's not true to the facts of the set it does maybe feel true to maybe what the vibe was in the sportatorium you know, yeah. in May when it's like humid as hell in this like sleazy Florida music venue uh, where the dead are getting kind of down and funky and and and, and sleazy. Like uh, that that's a vibe that I like to sit in a lot when I'm listening to this record. It's a totally different vibe from Cornell too, which like is it? I mean, it's such a legendary show, but the fact that they're playing like older material on that show kind of makes it almost timeless in a way that this show is not <laughs> like it almost feels like cornell could have happened at any time in the 70s 
uh it's just like a really good dead show that is representative of like a wide swath of grateful dead whereas this show is like this is the late 70s and we're really gonna like give you a totally different feel even though it was only two weeks later uh which i appreciate about it i think dick did a good job with that to be like you know may is an all saint stephen throwbacks and uh scarlet fires like there's this like you know sort of lascivious dead that was maybe even (laughs) more present uh through that month well and like and Again, that kind of seems true to their respective settings because, you know, Cornell, you know, you're in upstate New York. It is, you know, more of, I mean, that's, you're not in the country in Ithaca, but it is more of a maybe laid back or old school feeling type environment. Whereas, again, you're playing this show in southern Florida in like 1977. You know, like it's not, this is not a place to play Jack Straw and right. Loser. You know, like you're not going to be playing <laughs> those great cowboy songs from the early 70s. You're going to be, you know, you know, playing to the room. And I think right. they did it really well. And uh, yeah, I love, you know, I, I love this version of Dancing in the Street. You know, we talked about this earlier about how this song, obviously, you know, made famous by Martha and the Vandellas. In the 60s, it's one of the great Motown hits. It's a song that I'm sure when the Grateful Dead first started playing it, it was known as just like a great party song in the same way that Good Lovin' was. You know, it's a song that everyone knows, like a like an, like an anthem for, for the kids of the time. And just the way that they were able to revisit this song throughout their history and approach it in different ways, I just think is really interesting because you don't really think of this otherwise as like a jam vehicle at all like to jam out dancing in the streets it doesn't yeah. really seem like uh, there's nothing because like as the original song it's such a great tight pop song you know it's probably like two and a half minutes long uh there's not really any place to stretch that out that seems obvious um so the dead really were able to reinvent it each time they played it i think you know, doing a little sneak preview here to, you know, when we talk about Dick's Picks Volume 4, you know, that show from 1970, I think they play it, that show too. I think yeah, it they might do. be on that record. The original arrangement, and, yeah. But it's yeah, also pretty, also, like, it's also a little jammy, but in more like a, it's not a pick band song, but in like a, more like a turn on your love light style fashion. Right, kind of like a, almost like a gospely type feel to it, yeah, or like a rave up type song, um, where this is just totally different. And again, as we said earlier, great showcase for Donna and and Donna and Bob together, like what they could do as as singers. Where again, I think when you think about Bob and Donna singing together, you think about them sort of shouting at each other or shouting over each other, whether <laughs> yeah. it's in playing in the band or it's in you know Sunshine Daydream, you know that. You know, the coming out of Sugar Magnolia, like them just sort of like screaming over each other. And it's sort of like the most obnoxious aspects of both of their vocals doesn't, you know, it can be kind of grating to hear them that way. And on uh, Dancing in the Street, they're actually like pretty subtle and like pretty sexy, like how they play off of each other. I think it's like really, really cool. Yeah, definitely. I think they, I think, you know, they had Terrapin, Blues for Allah to some extent, but Terrapin really feels like the first album that they recorded 
with Donna involved, <laughs> not just like tacked on. So like they've they've definitely like both dancing and estimated is like that too. Like it feels like they have worked out parts. Uh, I wouldn't say harmonies, but at least like you know parts that go well together. Uh, that right. Donna can sing with both Bob and Jerry. Uh, that at least for now sound really good live as well. And I think, you know, that's another underrated thing about May 77, probably why they were so tight uh, for this month, so uncharacteristically practiced and tight, was that they had been recording this material for so long in the studio. And I think Keith Olsen brought a sort of professionalism that certainly a self-produced dead album wouldn't have brought to the studio and uh yeah they they sound good they sound together and probably would never sound this you know well rehearsed and together again so the uh, the actual first set ends with dancing in the street which makes sense as like a good kind of set closer but on the uh on the record on the Dixpix volume 3 they actually tack on the beginning of the second set on the first disc so you have help on the way slipknot and franklin's tower ending the first disc of the Dick's Picks record, which, you know, by the way, like if you're listening to this on Spotify or something, it doesn't really make a difference. But, you know, the original record, it ended with 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 that three with that three shot there. And, you know, I gotta say, like, that is like one of my favorite, you know, sort of segues in all of Grateful Dead lore. I love those three songs together especially help on the way and slipknot like franklin's tower is always like a good addition but um help on the way and slipknot together like just those two um are always great and it's another example of like kind of similar to i guess lazy lightning into supplication where you have a good pop song kind of pop rock song going into like a pretty trippy kind of jazzy rock instrumental and I, I mean, I think Help on the Way is a much better song than Lazy Lightning. I, I, mean, I love Help on the Way as a song. But again, like Slipknot is always a highlight for me. And I think kind of an underrated uh, dead instrumental. Because um, I, you know, they played that into the 90s. And it's, I think it's an example of a jam vehicle that they actually could continue to play in really interesting ways, even like toward the end of their career. Um, yeah, but like at this show, it was like a relatively new song, uh, for them, but like, I, I really liked the version, uh, in this show. Yeah. I mean, it, this is like a version of help slip Frank that I wish I like had more insightful things to say about it, <laughs> right. but it's just like, it's just like a really great version of it that doesn't do anything that unusual, but it's still just and I think it again goes back to my point just a second ago about them being really well rehearsed and tight at this point. Like it, it's a very, that is like a sort of trilogy of songs that can get real wobbly when they're not so well practiced at playing it. Uh, and it, there's just, there's like no seams on this version. It just flies through it. Like, uh, and it's, yeah, it's really good. I mean, it, there's, not much more insight I can add to it. <laughs> it's just like it's, and it, I think it's another place where like having a really loud fill is nice, particularly in Franklin's Tower, which I agree can get a little bit dull sometimes. 
but I really like the things that Phil does to kind of vary the verses of a very long song. Like there's one part always near the end where he just starts doing like slides like over and over again. Right. That I always love and like you you lose that in a tape that isn't very good, but if you can hear him sort of up in the mix, it adds just like a really cool sort of like percussive quality to the end of it. Uh yeah, it's it's a really good version. This Franklin's Tower is like really long too. It's like it's like about fifteen minutes, I think. Yeah. And I start. I, I mean, I start to feel it a little bit toward the end, where I'm like, okay, this could maybe be twelve, <laughs> and you know, be sufficient for me. But you know, I'm not going to complain. I mean, it, it's seventy-seven dead playing Franklin's Tower. Like, I will enjoy the full fifteen minutes. You know, beggars can't be choosers. It's still pretty great right. to hear them play the song. I mean. Is it fair to say that, like, the definitive version of these three songs is still from, like, that one from the vault? Like, when they come out and they play those three? I mean, I don't know if it's just because it sounds so cool at the start of that show. Yeah. I don't know if those are the actual best performed versions of those songs, but, like, that's what I always think of. Yeah. I, I think, think of those three songs. It's the, it's just that it's a song that really comes down to, like, how well they execute it. And so that version was obviously, like, the debut of the song, and they were, like, playing for a bunch of record executives and, like, really hyped up to play it right the first time. Uh, And this version kind of matches that, I think, Uh, and is even a little bit better, because I feel like they're more comfortable in the song at that point. Uh, Later on, like, there's, like, some longer Slipknots. Like, Slipknot gets a little more exploratory in the middle, but other than that, it doesn't really change that much and it just kind of gets more and more raggedy <laughs> i think as the dead goes on uh so it's, right. it's fun to hear them like play it play it well i will say that one of my favorite slipknots ever is from and this is me i'm standing up for 1991 again it's um from rfk stadium i think it's june 14th 1991 and it was actually released with that like dvd set of like that came out, you know, like a decade ago. Um, and it might be like one from the vault volume three or something like that. But I remember <laughs> it gets confusing. Can, yeah. It's some, it's something like that, but you can go on re-listen and like hear like a great soundboard of it. And I just, that was like one of the first times that I really appreciated Bob's unconventional, uh, rhythm guitar playing because his, yeah. the guitar parts he's playing on that are just incredible. And, it sounds really clear. Like you can hear what he's doing like clear as a bell on that particular recording. And so that Slipknot is always pretty close to my heart for that reason, just because Bob, I think sounds really great on it. Um, but yeah, I always love Slipknot. Slipknot to me is like the, is the star in the middle of those two songs, you know, two really good pop rock songs with this like awesome jazz rock instrumental in the middle that they can take to really interesting places. Um, so as I said, 
earlier, you know, this is the opposite of taking a song to interesting places. Uh, (laughs) The the second disc begins with Samson and Delilah. And, you know, I don't hate this song, but it's just like, you know, and it's a song that I think if I was in the room, I'd be excited to hear it. You know, it's like a good kind of upbeat rock and roll song. But knowing what else is on the second disc, I always, this is like very expendable to me. So this was, I did use my bathroom break. Right. Uh, we were Samson both running to the bathroom. Yeah. Getting getting beers well, for the rest of the second set. Yeah. Exactly. I was like, you know, I was in line for beer and I heard the dead come out and I was kind of pissed at first. And then I heard him playing Samson and Delilah. And I'm like, all right, I'll take my time. I'll get my beer. I'll take a piss and then I'll go back to my seat. Like if, if I miss this song, it's not a big deal. What I will say for Samson and Delilah is that I do think it's a good two drummer dead song because it kind of has like this right. like sort of cavemany like drumming going on in the background, which I think works really well with the two of them, and will continue to work well with the two of them like for you know longer than a lot of songs. Um, so I'll give it that. I will damn it with the faint praise of like at least two drummer dead isn't awful <laughs> on Samson and Delilah. <laughs> It, it it's definitely again kind of going back to our larger point about 77 being you know maybe the beginning of the 80s or like the seeds of the 80s being planted this you know samson and delilah to me seems like i mean i think dead and co probably play samson and delilah all the time right. like it just seems like a song that plays really well in a stadium mm-hmm. you know or an arena there's not a lot of subtlety to it right you know which is why i guess it works well as a two drummer song you know it has that kind of tribal like arena rock beat that just really works in those big spaces but it doesn't have like the subtlety like you're not going to be moved to tears listening to samson <laughs> delilah you know you're gonna like you're gonna maybe you're gonna hopefully dance and have a good time right but yeah you know, no one's gonna be like oh yeah my mind was blown listening to samson right. and delilah it's also you know? kind of a short walk it's, from samson and delilah to uh man woman or man smart woman smarter oh. which is Possibly my least right. favorite dead song. We'll see as we go through this. Oh man! Unless that has that even that made a, a dick's picks? I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, we'll we'll find a live album that that's on, just so we can have an excuse to talk about yeah, that yeah. Uh, song. Because uh, I'm sure you know we got to find a show with like you know, like man smart woman smarter and like victim or the crime. And, you know, some show like where both of those songs are in the set and then maybe, you know, I don't know, some other like and like, you know, Brent doing Dear Mr. Fan. Yeah, I was going to say like four Brent songs. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, that'd be that'd be money. So, um, okay, so the next song we talked about this earlier on the second disc is Sunrise. Which, by the way, I should say, after they play Samson Delilah, they do Brian Eyed Women and they do Good Lovin'. Yeah. Also, thankfully not. <laughs> the Good Lovin' is probably the one that I'm really happy didn't make the cut. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. I mean, it is. Uh, there is a funny part where he shouts out Russia, <laughs> which is always <laughs> fun to hear. I think he does right. that in 78, too, like some of those Red Rocks versions. Like, Bob just like finds the weirdest like countries and cities to shout out at the end of Good Lovin', which I always appreciate. But yeah, especially because right. like, I, again, it's a little bit like when they would play three different Chuck Berry covers in one song. Like doing both "Dancing in the Streets" and "Good Lovin'" in the same show is—it's a little much. Maybe, yeah, maybe we pick don't one need or to, the other. 
Yeah, good loving if that would have been in the set, that would have been my bathroom set. <laughs> yeah. I would have sat through Samson and Delilah and I would have walked out during good loving. <laughs> um, so Sunrise is the next song on the record and it's a Donna showcase. Yeah. And and it, again, it, it appeared on Terrapin Station a couple months after this show. And uh, definitely the first song that Donna got onto a Grateful Dead record and the last. And, you know, it's fine. I appreciated being there as a, you know, you know, we're both Donna defenders, so I like her having a showcase. Having said that, you know, I'm not terribly excited to hear this song, you know? Yeah. Uh, there's, but, uh, you know, I appreciate that it's there. Right. I mean, I think it's good that this version exists, too, because it doesn't have the overproduction of the Terrapin Station version. And right, it like because the the Terrapin version, the the album version gets a little like show tuney. Like it it feels like a like a Broadway like showstopper when it gets to that like big middle part. And this version doesn't feel like that because it doesn't have sort of the overdubs and the slick production. Um, I mean, I think it's fine. It it is as we already said. Like it, it feels like the Grateful Dead trying to do trying to be Fleetwood Mac, which is just like a weird fun sort of quirk of the era and we talked about yeah there's no lindsey buckingham they also don't have like the rock solid rhythm section of a fleetwood mac which i think this song sort of reveals though i really like phil's parts in sunrise i think he has like really interesting sort of lead bass going on in this um but yeah i mean they were never going to be uh you know fleetwood and mcvee behind donna on this right. one and i don't know it's it's it, 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 like it, it, it's a lot like funiculi funicula for me where i'm glad that they had the guts to put this on there and show what was unique about this era rather than just slapping on like that peggy which is great but would have been a much safer choice or putting on brown eyed woman or something like that like there were a lot of safer right. choices than including Sunrise, and as we talked about, the first two volumes were conspicuously Donna-free, and this is like a good sort of counterbalance to that. Like, here's Donna doing her featured song. Yeah, and again, I think, you know, I, you know Dick doesn't seem like a Donna fan, really, but and I, and I don't know to what degree he was motivated to put Sunrise on here because it was a, a unique song that really really isn't on any other Grateful Dead live records that I'm aware of. Um, But be that as it may, it does make this album unique that it's on there. So it is a cool thing, even if it's like, not the first song you're going to punch up if you're going to listen to this record. It's like, oh, Sunrise is on here. It's cool. And And again, like you said, it's much better than the studio version. So that is a plus uh, for Dick's Picks Volume 3, for sure. Um, So the next several tracks, I kind of think of as being as one piece. I mean, they all kind of segue into each other, but we can kind of break them down, I guess, one by one. I mean, I guess my overall thought on this progression, which, by the way, it's estimated profit into Eyes of the World, into Wharf Rat, into Terrapin Station, and then into Morning Dew. This was a progression that they played, I think, fairly often at this time, especially estimated profit into Eyes of the World. And, you know, they weren't doing drums in space at this time. So, 
you know, typically you'd probably have Drums in Space after Eyes of the World. And then coming out of that, you would, ha- you know, go into Warfrat or like a Stella Blue type song. Um, but they don't have that in this show, which is another thing that kind of makes this era, I think, probably the most accessible era or like one of the most accessible eras for, for newbies to get into the Grateful Dead, that you aren't going to have to listen to 20 minutes of like psychedelic exploration that, you know, if you're into the band, that stuff can be pretty cool, but it's going to scare off people who haven't really listened to the band before. Uh, you're not really getting any of that, any of that trippiness in this show. It's like a pretty straightforward uh, second set. And they don't really jam out any of these songs. I guess Eyes of the World would be the most jammed out. And I talked about this earlier. Eyes of the World is like one of my favorite Grateful Dead songs. It's probably like my favorite jam vehicle for them or like, you know, one of my favorite jam vehicles. And what they do (laughs) to Eyes of the World in 77 is just... Like, I don't dislike it. I I mean, I, I can kind of appreciate it, but it's so fast compared to what they were doing with just Bill in the early 70s. Like it's, yeah. it, it's not my preference for hearing this song. You know, and, 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 the, disc, and the disco-y type beat yeah. that they put into it, I don't really get into it as I do in other places. I would, to me, this song needs to be spacious and kind of jazzy and not slow, but, you know, it should, it should swing. You know, it shouldn't kind of bash you over the head and playing it too fast i think for me it kind of defeats the purpose of it yeah and i think it you mentioned that none of the songs really get jammed out very much and i think it's kind of like that that's the downside of this like disco dead era is that it makes for a nice peppy version of eyes of the world but then they can't really find anywhere to go with it almost right away like once the song's over it just kind of fades out and then there's like a couple minutes of jerry basically playing unaccompanied by himself so it's it's disappointing after like the big 73 74 eyes of the worlds which just kind of go on forever and as you say swing really hard um yeah i mean it's like it's a fun experiment but it's not my preferred era of eyes or anybody's preferred era of eyes but it's like (laughs) again this is like seeding the 80s like this is kind of there was still improvisation to the dead but it was much more in the box and i think having two drummers has a lot to do with that and i think just sort of a refocusing of their sound has a lot to do with that and you can kind of hear it through this suite like you compare this suite to the first two volumes which both like the second disc of volume one and you know the entirety of volume two are like a big song suite that really showcased how sort of fluid the dead could be in those eras moving between songs and stretching out those songs and i don't know there's something about this suite that doesn't really do it for me for most of it like i like it and i think it ends really well but it definitely gets pretty sleepy in a way that I attribute to later eras of the dead. 
and there could be again pharma pharmaceutical reasons for that <laughs> but like it does it it kind of feels like a clock's like batteries like running out <laughs> from estimated through eyes and then down through warfrad into the sort of half half a terrapin to the start of morning dew and then morning dew kind of picks back up and explodes but it's not the most thrilling sequence to me no it's in it's interesting because I feel like the first disc is like stronger on this, which you maybe wouldn't yeah, expect. Absolutely, I think that, yeah. You know, I think if you if you listen to jam bands, you're kind of used to the familiar pattern of like uh, we're playing songs in the first set, and the second set is where we get jammy and, and exploratory. And um, you know, we mentioned like sugary uh, in the first set and dancing in the street are like kind of the most interesting music that they're playing and and i would also i guess group in like the help on the way slipknot and franklin's tower you know which are technically in the second set but like they're included on the first disc in the dicks picks volume three um yeah it's just like i don't know i don't want to be overly negative about this because it again i mean i think may of 77 deserves its reputation i think the band sounds really powerful uh, and they they sound polished and, and rehearsed in, in ways that they aren't uh, in clearly other eras of their career. But there's just not a lot of risk being, you know, you don't feel a lot of risk in this show. And it really kind of comes to a head, I think, in this suite where you look at the set list and you're like, oh, yeah, Eyes of the World. They're going to like, that's a great song. And they can really kind of take that to cool places. And... They don't really do it, and then like the the catharsis that you normally get from like a really pretty wharf rat, which you expect it to come out of like some sort of like weird noisy jam, and it doesn't really do that here. So that song, which is a great song, but it feels like as you said, it kind of drags a little bit. You know, the contrast that you need for that song to really come off, they don't really provide that in this set. So the big dramatic moment ends up being in morning dew, as you said, which, you know, that is a 14 minute version. So I guess they do kind of jam that out. Although it's not the sort of noisy going into the darkness type jamming that we heard in the first two Dick's picks, like with, with the dark star or, you know, with the, like in the, on the second disc of, of volume one. Uh, so again, I think if, if you haven't heard a lot of Dead, this would be an album I would give you that I think would probably make you excited to hear more. Whereas if you've listened to this band a lot, you might be a little kind of let down by the second yeah. disc. I mean, what what I will give them credit for is that in this sort of long, quiet period, like going from Warfrat into like the second half, basically, of Terrapin... Right. is a pretty cool like inspired decision and it's like right. very much like jerry just you can kind of it, it's one of those great moments you get on dead tapes or any jam band tapes where you can kind of hear the idea occurring to them and they decide to just like go with it like collectively like chase down this this idea that just popped into his head uh and i like that and i remember when i bought this as a teen being 
disappointed that it said Terrapin was going to be on it, and then it was just the end of Terrapin. <laughs> but, you know, it's still, like, the jammy part of Terrapin, I guess. But, you know, I wanted to hear the lady with the fan part. Uh, but it, it's cool, It's and it makes it, like, a, a another thing that I think probably stood out to Dick about this show is that that's something that you didn't hear very often, is them just deciding to jump into a song at the midway point. So that's pretty cool. And then, you know, even after they do the Terrapin jam and go into Morning Dew, there's all these little, like, callbacks to Terrapin in Morning Dew. I don't know if you could hear those. Like, Keith right. plays the the Terrapin, like, sort of little, like, jam melody a couple times. You hear Bob play it a couple times. And so it's almost, it's not, you know, like a cheesy sort of gimmicky mashup. But it's cool that you can hear this sort of like thread of a song that was still new and very exciting for them to play, like working its way into this song that they again had played back from the very beginning. And it's also just cool, like the show is so different from Cornell in every other regard, but they both end in this like big explosive morning dew. Uh, So it is kind of nice to kind of bring it back. You know, in right. line with the May 77 show that everybody knows. Uh, and The End of Morning Dew is amazing. Like, it, especially after, you know, a good 20 minutes of very subdued, quiet, slow, dead. Uh, to sort of build back to this big symphonic explosion at the end is, it's, you know, the kind of thing that they were really good at. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, other than that, it's, this is, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's good dead, but not great dead. I would say. just hear the commenters right now talking about us calling a may 77 show good but not great dead <laughs> i'm gonna say I, i'm gonna say it's like very good i mean you know i i feel like there is an element here where we're nitpicking like a pretty strong show i think overall especially you know we're gonna be pretty desperate for this show when we get into some of the dregs later on <laughs> i feel like i feel like this is gonna sound pretty damn good when we hear other eras but you know i think again just the you know if you're looking for like dark star dead exploratory dead psychedelic dead kind of like the you know melt your brain and have it go out your ears type band like you're not going to get that in this show but they are really good at being a really strong powerful rock band on this show and and, and what you were just talking about just the grand conclusion that they're able to pull off. And I, and I do think kind of going from Warfrat into that sort of climactic part of Terrapin, you know, was Jerry maybe flexing those instincts a little bit being like, okay, we're going to have 
the dramatic ending of this show. We're going to play the most dramatic part of Terrapin Station, and then we're going to go into Morning Dew, which is like the sort of traditional Grateful Dead, like rousing conclusion song, you know, like from sort of the earliest part of their history. Like you play Morning Dew, there's sort of like something apocalyptic about that song. Uh, you know, that's like their November rain, you know, that's like Jerry being slash <laughs> on the top of the mountain playing awesome guitar solos. And it always works because he's really good at it and it works great on this show. So I don't want to like, I don't want to be too hard on this show because it's easy to be hard on 77 dead. Like when it, when it's so great, you know, if you want to nitpick it, but I think for what it is, it's like really entertaining you know it's just you know maybe not the best you know which is like the reputation that it has like yeah but i'd be curious to hear other people's opinion on that because i'm sure there's lots of people who would counter that and i'd be dying to hear what they'd have to say about that well i think i mean i came across a whole bunch of people saying oh 522 is better than 58 and i feel like that's just kind of like a nice like easy dead contrarian opinion to have to be because there's also people that are like you know five seven is better than five eight and five nine is better than five eight and like everybody wants to say that this other may show is the real like special may show and only newbies like may 8th because that's the first tape everybody gets and i mean i think i I just like i appreciate that this show is so different from may 8th and i think it's this you know the volume the official release is really good it's just very front-loaded like where i think the second disc is like you know a a step down from the first disc which is just like a really cool like different kind of grateful dead than you're used to hearing uh particularly in this release in you know the dick's pick series so far and also just if like you know your only comparison point for may 77 is the cornell show like this is this is a very different band than i think most people have in their imagination when they listen to that show so we have criticisms of this show but i think we both really like it and i would definitely recommend checking it out and you know if you want to do the same pharmaceuticals that the dead were doing while you listen to it, <laughs> that we don't know anything about that, but you know, maybe that'll add to your enjoyment of the show as well. Um, looking ahead, because we always encourage people to listen to the next Dick's Picks in advance of the next episode. We're going to be doing volume four next. And this is, uh, you know, we talked about May 8th being a very famous show. This is also a very famous show. Yeah. And it's, like, easily my favorite Dick's Picks. Not to uh, tip my hand too early, but, yeah. I mean, this was, like, when when Dick started the series, this was, like, you know, top of his wish list that he wanted to put out. And, uh, yeah, I think we'll all see why. And he also gets three discs to play with, though, you know, it's sort of a uh, monkey's paw because he gets three discs for volume four but then he has to cover two shows and it's also shows that have already been released partially (laughs) i mean it's it's messy like everything in the grateful dead it's messy and again this is february 13th and 14th 1970 at the fillmore east we're gonna get lots of pig pen in this show and i'm excited to get into excited to get into pig pen i'm excited to talk about pig pen (laughs) 
And, uh, and then we'll there... get into Brent the following show. So, well, well. So, are there any like twenty-minute Good Morning Little Schoolgirls in this show? I can't remember. Because like when... there are, but they put them out on the uh, the original release, the uh, Bears Choice release, not in uh, this one. So, oh, yeah. Man. So you're lucky you'll miss that. We'll talk but about. There is yeah. a disc that is in enti- uh, you know half. Love light, so yeah. I don't mind love light. love light as much. Love light, I can get into like the like the, the 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 like interminable Good Morning Little School Girl, like by Pigpen, like those. That's definitely a bathroom break for me. Waiting, I, I, <laughs> I know sixties era a shows. Long bathroom break. <laughs> All right, well, Rob, it's always a pleasure listening to the dead and talking to the dead with you, and uh, look yep. up, and uh, we'll be looking forward to talking more dead and listening to more dead in our next episode. All right, guys. Thanks again for hanging out with us. Yep. Thank you all. Talk to you later. Fairly well. Six from the Vault is hosted by me, Stephen Hyden, and Rob Mitchum, and produced by Osiris Media. It is edited and produced by Brian Brinkman and mastered by Matt Dwyer. All music is composed by Amar Sastry, unless otherwise noted. Logo design is by Liz B. Art and Design. The executive producer of 36 from the Vault is RJB. Yes, rock everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. It is a rock and roll city for sure. Yeah! Yeah! The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles, The Wrath of the Buzzard, P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts.